0: Hello, welcome to today's episode of From the Margins, Perspectives on Architecture. Good morning, good evening, good night. I'm your host, Germán. I'm here today with Luis Carranza, whose research and published work focuses primarily on modern architecture and art in Latin America, with emphasis on Mexico. This work emphasizes how the relationships between social, literary, philosophical, and theoretical ideas impact the conceptualization and materialization of architecture and design. I normally begin this podcast asking about the quarantine, but there's a list of many important other things happening at the same time. So, how's the quarantine going for you? And I ask in past because it is my understanding that you're going back to teaching. Is this happening face to face? Is this happening online? How's everything going?
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, thanks for having me, Herman. It's, it's great to be here, um, first and foremost. Um, now, quarantine, how's it going? I'm ready to, for it to be done. Um, <laughs> so, I, I think I can speak for all of us. Um, and yes, yes, teaching is starting in a couple of weeks. Um, I teach at two places. I teach here in Rhode Island at a school called Roger Williams, and um, the insistence there is that they really want to have as much face-to-face as possible. Um, I think because of the kind of economy, economies of what happened last last semester, that a lot of people kind of, you know, kind of dropped out, and there was all this money that needed to be returned, and you know, the university took a big hit. So there's this uh, attempt to at try to avoid that. Um, so fortunately, the majority of my big classes will be online um, but I will actually be teaching studio and that will be probably a hybrid situation with you know some things working on in Zoom or Miro and, and then at some moments like having some types of reviews. I, I don't know exactly how that's gonna happen but um, and then the class that I teach at Columbia University, I mean, it's a, it's a small seminar on utopias in Latin America. So that will definitely be um, online, which kind of bums me out because, you know, one of the things about teaching at Columbia is to be able to use Avery and to have the kind of, you know, like interaction and banter and back and forth with, with the students, you know, talking about some of these, these things. So.
0: But I'm ready yeah. to be done. The archives, this. yes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll make the the proper introductions. Uh, Luis Carranza is an adjunct professor, associate professor at Columbia University's uh, Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation, and professor of architecture and of art and architectural history at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. He obtained his B.Arch at the University of Southern California and his Ph.D. in architectural history and theory from Harvard University. He's an adjunct uh, associate professor at GSAP, as I was uh, mentioning, where he teaches courses like Reinventing Living, uh, Modern Experiments in Latin American Housing, uh, Ephemeral Architectures in Falsified Cities, Utopian Visions of Latin America, for Latin America, Plastic Mo- Modernity, Art, Sculpture and Cinema in Latin American Architecture, Reading Precisions, Reconstructing Latin Americans, Le Corbusier, Radical fuck functionalism in Latin America, modern architecture in Mexico. And I wanted to kind of like list them because uh, one of the things that we mentioned in a couple of of other um, interactions was that all of these uh, courses are listed as non-Western, like in the non-Western track, which I would like to go back uh, later in the conversation. In his publications, uh, many... uh, In many of the listed publications, but I would like to mention two of them Architecture as Revolution, Episodes in the History of Modern Mexico, and what has become mostly like my Bible during my PhD, which is Modern (laughs) Architecture in Latin America, Art, Technology, and Utopia, forthcoming with uh, Fernando Lara uh, at UT Austin. And I say because, um, has like for my exams and like for my Yes, for a lot of my dissertation, this has become like a go-to. We um, <laughs> intended
1: it as a secular book, let me tell you.
0: It, it definitely has become. <laughs> uh, his current research addresses the radical work of Mexican functionalist architect and painter Juan O'Gorman to be published in Latin America Experiments in Radical Functionalism, um, and Carlos Lasso's work for the SCOP. Mexico's Department of Communication and Public Works, and his design and production of civilized caves. So, um, tell us, what are you doing now? What are you working on now? Are you still working on uh, any research and publications? Are you just working on your courses?
1: Um, yeah, both. <laughs> you have <laughs> to. I mean, what else is there to do, right? Yes. Besides. Besides eating, the proverb, pro, as they say, the proverbial eating and proverbial drinking during yes. the pandemic. Um, <laughs> everybody's going to be fat and um, alcoholic, as they say, but I don't know. Anyways, and have a lot of uh, uh, work produced. Um, actually, I've been working on both. I've been I've been working on getting ready for, for, for school, um, and um, kind of just trying to you know get my mind around like how to you know re the classes in order to kind of address the the, the new teaching environment. Uh, but I've also been working on on my on my research um, the the Gorman book I had written had worked on an Ogorman book for a couple of ye- for a couple of years maybe like the last two or three years and um, and that right now is being um, reviewed uh, for publication so um, it was a small book um, that just basically deals with this functionalist um, period so from nineteen. 19- 30 through 36 more or less um, and um, and it'll be a book that has actually some translations of some of his writings um, so that there will be you know uh, first first ten uh, source material for for students here in the US uh, which is you know something that is really really needed I think um, yes. especially for teaching classes and um, So so yeah so so I was working on that and so like right now I'm like in the waiting game of see if it gets if it gets approved Um, and then I've been working on um, the the Lasso project the Lasso project I've been going to Mexico for the last couple of years these things happen in tandem by the way Uh, so it's a little bit confusing at times. so the Ogorman project kind of came out of the lasso project and the lasso project came out of the latin american book and mm-hmm. you know it's, it's, the, the latin american book is like a kind of a source of little beginning points
0: uh, I, yes i bet that i mean um when you go to the archives and you find that all these materials like i cannot just put it in one book you need to find like other places to put all of the material that you find. I actually went to the UNAM's archive and I was talking to Elisa. And Elisa mentioned that she knows you and like all the material that you find. And she actually was mentioning about uh, the Juan O'Gorman material and the Carlos Lazo material that you were working on. It's like, yes, there's like tons of material that they have there.
1: Right, right. I I love being in that basement archive. Um, Actually, all all of the archives, um, it's like um, stepping into a time warp because you basically, especially that one, you go down there and there's no cell phone service or anything and, Mm -hmm. you know, you come back out and you have like 6 million like text messages and things like this. It's like you kind of walked out of the world. Um, But yeah, so and then a lot of the lasso stuff is at the... Uh, AGN, the Archivo General de la Nación. Mm. Um, they have like 90 linear meters of material, and, um, which is interesting to go through because Lasso, Lasso, and we can talk about Lasso a little bit um, later, um, basically saved everything that he did, like every single scrap of paper is in his archive. Um, yeah. And so, um, and of course, you know, it's cataloged terribly, um, and it's kept really in poor shape. So you have like folders that have like folded drawings and then like receipts and then photographs. And so you're kind of like unfolding drawings to see what's going on with some of the projects and finding things inadvertently. So, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a nice thing about... Um, research right that you discover things that you don't expect to discover and then it changes your kind of idea of what's what's happening but then on the other hand it gives you the sense that whoa you know like so much about history is so fortuitous uh in terms of how we find it that um you know we can always only claim the provisionality of a particular approach and you know and try to do as much as one can with that and then you know and then Suggest that other people follow through and continue to, to, to see it
0: Yes, but that's I mean that's very surprising and very interesting what you're mentioning about this archive Because honestly my experience in in Mexican archives and I cannot speak to you know all of them I've been to a couple of them working with my with my dissertation, but most of the archives that I visited um, I guess that uh, with exception of a couple of them that are very well organized and very well kept, which is mostly particular. And I I think you can imagine which one I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, But you don't find a lot of this information and you don't find that. Architects and I don't know if this is a if this is a thing that it's common in Latin America or that was just a, a Mexican thing or that it was or that it was how it just happened with the people that I was looking at, but uh, there is a lack of information. There is a lack of all this, you know, care for archiving, this mm-hmm. care of of taking a lot of the documentation and putting them in, in places, in boxes, in, in, even in, in archives, in, in, you know, offices that were as big as I'm going to say it as Mario Pani's, for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of his work that it's like some of the, some of the documents are there. Some of the documents just got lost. Uh, There's a lot of the documentation that was just photographed and in, they ended up in, in um what's the what's in the like microfilm but the 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 drawings are they 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 don't exist Uh, a lot of the personal material or like letters or and like all of that material doesn't exist Uh, the same with other architects and not just to mention exactly not just to mention Pani, but like many other architects it happens the same it's like i it's 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 interesting to see this happening with a lot with a lot of architects and then i had the experience on the other side here going to i don't know again just to mention one name at Penn, going to uh, louis khan's archive where you find like receipts of you know pencils uh, the letter that he sent to his uh, secretary in 1963, in January, like you find like every single thing that he produced and that he signed, it, like it's, it's kind of like uh, surprising to see the amount of material that one can find in certain archives and the lack of information that we can see in other archives. Like how do you deal with this, you know, of like unbalance of information from even in 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 these two projects like do you find this in Juan Ogorman and Carlos Lasso's uh, projects different for example?
1: Oh yeah um, Ogorman who knows where Ogorman's archives are <laughs> um, well I mean uh, yes they are in azcapotzalco in Mexico that's where a lot of his drawings ended up um, uh, personal papers I don't know where they are. I suspect they're probably with family and it's not really clear. I've heard from friends that, you know, they've seen material of a gorman that people have. And so obviously they don't like family doesn't want to let that go or doesn't want to donate it or wants to keep it. Although, I mean, the sad thing is probably, you know, stuck in a box, probably getting moldy or ongos and, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just basically will be lost. Um, The Inba, um, the Instituto Nacional de Bellas Artes, the, the Mexican Department of Fine Arts, um, has material, but I mean, they—they they were the—I mean, I just like fought with them for two years to try to get material from them. I mean, by luck, I saw it once that they, you know, through kind of again fortuitously, the 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 lady that was kind of the, like I don't know if it, one of the secretaries or. You know some like an assistant there kind of felt sorry for me because i had you know kind of gone and asked and done and she let me look through her computer and i saw drawings that i've never seen before uh things that just completely kind of knocked my socks out off um and you know to try to get that material you know like writing letters calling getting people to call on your behalf and um you know and Two years of this and then all of a sudden, you know, like when they finally granted it to me because they had changed leadership, the woman, a woman who actually actually showed me, showed it to me in the first place said, oh, yeah, we've had this material waiting for you for two years. You know, didn't you get our email?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's probably my fault, I'm sure. But, yeah, no. And so, exactly so.
0: Like- I was not waiting for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that'll that some of that material will be in the O'Vormann book, uh, which is really kind of like some of the stuff is pretty spectacular. But um but yeah, so there's like this kind of um, I mean then and, and but the other hand, you know, you have the Lasso archive, which is just excessive. I mean, and you can you know, like because I've seen the I've seen it. They've showed me the, the wall of boxes of books and wow. then, um, and um, and you just say it's like okay, you just start picking folders and you look through and you get different aspects of his of his life revealed at an, any particular moment. So, and again, it depends on the folder. You get these um, very strange kind of correspondences that are very kind of um, paranoid uh, because you know because he's he's getting positioned to become the president of Mexico. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. there's this kind of, like, he has this particular kind of aura. And then, on the other hand, then you have these other correspondences from, like, religious leaders, because he's a very, very fervent um, Catholic, you know, asking for favors and, you know, like, sending all of these, you know, like, requests for, for him, you know, like, as... You know appealing to his religiosity wow. and so like different you get these different senses of the people and it's kind of hard ultimately to kind of square them um and to try to figure them out and so sometimes i i think that i want to kind of like focus yeah. more on the material and the work and the direction of a particular thing rather than just try to understand the bibliography the biography of the person mm-hmm. so I don't know. With the in the case of a again, and this is something that I suffered for my dissertation when I was working on my dissertation, is that there was material that was inaccessible. That they said we have this material, but you don't have access to it because we're going to write a, we're going to write a, um, uh, a book, or we're going to make a uh, publication, or we're going to do something. And um, and so then, what do you do? Is like you have to find this kind of secondary material. You have to rely on. On periodicals, you have to rely on other accounts to kind of construct arguments. So it's hard, but I'm sure you experience that too. Um,
0: yes, yes. I mean, most of the exactly most of the material doesn't even exist, and I have to rely on on newspapers, on newspapers articles, and on the material that it's been published, which is a little bit. On, on a couple of, of, of documents and drawings that do exist, and, and that's it. And, and basically writing a story from political documents, you know, mm-hmm. from, from all the documents that have been, those exist. You know, right. all, the, all the documents between um, the agencies and the money and where it comes from and where, where it was placed and what was built with that money. And then try to trace the story back and maybe find a document that kind of like backed up where that mm-hmm. money went to. And that's how I'm trying to write this story. Mm-hmm. But it would have been great to just find like documents and documents and documents of, of, of drawings. But yes, sometimes that's how one has to write the, the story of architecture.
1: Right. Yeah. The, 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 the sad thing is that I don't think that there's a archive culture, Um, I mean, I'll say in Mexico, but I'll probably imply Latin America in general. Um, You know, um, I've been trying to find the archives of Francisco Artigas, for example, the Mexican architect Mm. that worked in Pedregal. Um, And I know from the interviews that Esther McCoy did to him, which are of course at the Smithsonian, um, that he drew a lot. I mean, um, mean, I've heard from an interview that I that I that I did to his um, to one of his daughters that he was dyslexic, so he didn't write, but he drew a lot, um, and you can tell this in the interviews with McCoy because he's saying, "Oh, you know, you know, to the assistant, you know, make sure that you get Miss McCoy this drawing, or make sure that we draw this drawing for the book for Miss McCoy, or you know, like all these things." Mm-hmm. But the but the archive is is I don't know where um, I don't know. I I I have a feeling that it that there's an existence of material drawings and documents and things like this, especially from his work in El Pedregal, um, especially for his work probably for uh, Guanajuato that he did a lot of the kind of urban re, um, renewal of Guanajuato. He did mm-hmm. some things in like um, Sonora or Saltillo, I can't remember. Um, and um, but all of this is. You know, lost. I, in, in, a, in a letter that I wrote to Artigas's son, the one that basically continued the office, I said something like, You have to make this material available because people are going to forget about Artigas, you know? I mean, if Barragán himself is already being forgotten, uh, despite all of the kind of crazy controversies, um, you know, you can imagine somebody like Artigas or somebody like Juan de Garreta or somebody like, you know, well, sort of land, I don't know anybody. Yes, these exactly. people, and it's kind of yes, sad.
0: Exactly. Right? These, these people, if, if I mean, if uh, this jealousy of keeping uh, the families keeping their archives for themselves and not trying to, you know, not share them, and in many cases, um, not sharing it from an academic perspective, uh, it, it just gets forgotten and you don't you don't get to hear or you don't get we as well not even we as academics just like in general the public we we don't get to hear the whole story of what modern architecture in Mexico was which was right. not just you know the three people that we know there's like a long long list of people that was making it happen and that was actually building things in not just and and this is one of the, my other fights it was just not mexico city that was you know ha- making it happen right there was, there was there were people in the northern part of mexico that was also doing a lot of work and that was doing a lot of jobs and that was doing interesting things that has been forgotten
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and that just one that because they were not uh, from the center they have been written out and that because of course in in their families or no one has paid any attention to those works and even more uh, the cities and the municipalities don't really care those works have been destroyed and and we don't even know I mean if right. if a work by Mario Pani has been destroyed in in Juarez like imagine like le- lesser known names. What have happened to those works? You
1: know, well, even larger, known names like the, you know, the destruction of um, of um, most canonical Gomez house. You know, the one that's like the little glass house on the on the on the rock. You know, just you know, turned down a couple of years ago for you know to make, because it was a big lot and you know for profitability. But but besides that, I mean, for example, you know, like uh, one of the things that I that I found out when I was when I when I was working on Lasso uh, last year, when I was in Mexico, um, one of my really good friends' mother worked with Carlos Lasso. Uh, she was one of the first people who basically kind of attended UNAM when it was in the new campus that is in Ciudad Universitaria, um, and um, so it's really a interesting to to talk talk with her about her experiences with Lasso and, you know, like the kind of whole thing about like the university. And she was an edekan I don't know how you say that in English, you know, for like, you know, showing people around the guests that came to see the university for as the, an architecture uh, student, right? And, um, and here you have a woman who basically trained, um, I think she was in the same generation as Saludowski. Uh, And, you know, she she was a neighbor of um, Alvarez, although um, kind of younger than Alvarez. Um, And um, she did um, work in Mexico. She has an amazing house that she designed for herself and her husband. The husband, of course, didn't let her practice. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. once they got married, you know, she became the ama de la casa, the housewife, Mm -hmm. but she did do some design and then she, you you know, in other cases did a couple of houses for families. And this is a kind of a legacy that is also lost. I mean, here you have a woman who represents a particular moment of education and thinking in Mexico about architecture and especially issues of, you know, domesticity, kind of gender position of the woman within the Mexican family. um, And even like the ideas of how, you know, women deal with technology and the kind of relationship between the like modernity and, and, um, and like the Mexican traditions and family. And, you know, Nobody knows about her, right? Right. So everybody's, cool, of course, like- in, in, everybody's interested in Clara Porset and people like this, right? Um, I don't know. I had a uh, there was a student from Yale that um, that I talked to last year and who was interested in doing research on women and ar- architects. And I said, you know, like I, you should talk to people like like my friend, my friend's mother, because these are if 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 not only you can get something about her and begin to kind of show what has been the struggles of women in the profession in Mexico and their representation and self kind of uh, the, the way that they kind of self activated themselves within this particular worldview. But then she can also give you other links to other people and other, other names.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, because you just mentioned, um, her name, well, not her name, but her, this figure and, and the links, You know, it's like Sabludovsky and and Alvarez and like all uh, all these people that were around. And exactly like just as soon as UNAM's campus opened, women started to study. Women started to study architecture. What happened with the work that they were producing? What happened with at least um, if... Yes, we know that that the field of architecture has always been uh, mainly dominated by men, and in many cases, like you mentioned, uh, once they were married, they were not allowed to practice. But in many cases, their practices were interior, interior design, furniture, uh, you know, like uh, works that were <clears throat> sorry that were also considered. As not part of the architecture with a capital A, but has you know some influence in how people lived, and and it it has also been erased or not even written into the the history of modern architecture in Mexico or in many other parts of the world. I'm sure that this is not the only like you know, it's not just the case of Mexico. It has been the case of many other places. So it's yes, I'm I've always uh, wondered. Exactly. What what is the case of 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 women um in modern architecture in Mexico? Because the only the only person that we can hear her name is Clara Porcet. But there must be others. There must be like of course there must be others.
1: Well I mean in Latin America in general, if you think for example the um, I mean, I think that she's been shortchanged, is Amina Klavin, the wife of Gregory Varchauschik, you know, who basically was the person who designed the gardens for for the houses. And I I mean, she was the, I mean, I hate to put it in all of these male terms. She was the um, Roberto Burley Marx of Brazilian modern gardens before Roberto Burley Marx, right? Or you think of... Um, uh, Victoria Ocampo you know as the person who designs her own house in Mar del Plata in this kind of loisian way as a, a amateur architect you know in a sense and and uh, all of these all of these people, the, 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 all of the women associated, for example, with the Taller de Torres-Garcia, um, you know, because that was a very kind of inclusive um, kind of environment, you know, like, so you see images of murals that they designed and things like this. But again, there's there's this kind of huge um, kind of um, void of knowledge and recognition um, of, of what, what, pe- what people were doing, you know, and how important they actually were. I mean, I, th- I don't think we can see um, Varcharczyk's work um, as important without those gardens. I mean, the gardens just basically push it to becoming something that might've been like a, you know, like a kind of importation of sorts to something different, something that becomes a type of maybe um, kind of like an alternative modernity in a kind of different sense, you know what I mean?
0: Well, there's, there's a, there's an idea for some, someone that wants to, you know, that doesn't know what to do for their PhD. <laughs> there is, there is an idea there to go and investigate that because that's, that's definitely something needed. And especially with, um, you know, with that growing interest in, in precisely this diverse uh, histories, in, in architecture that, that I mean, we're, we're just starting to work on them. Right. Um, there's a lot that we don't know, and the information is there and must be there, and we just need people to, to start doing it, to right. start writing
1: it. But even the kind of um, preliminary work, you know, so um, in some of the classes that I've been teaching, I've been kind of lucky that, you know, people, Um, get excited about particular topics and then they'll run them to the end of their abilities. And mind you, you know, that these are masters of architecture students who have like studio as their first priority and, you know, and, and that basically, you know, like, like research is something that they like and they'd love, but they don't have time or they don't have the patience or they don't have the resources. Although, I mean, Avery library is, is, is a great resource. Um, and, um, but they run through and find as much information on these people. And it, you know, begins to kind of, you know, provide opportunities for, for more investigation. And that kind of makes me, you know, like hopeful that a, there's interest, there's material. Um, I, I had a student who did this amazing work on, um, uh, a very young woman um german emigre that basically did all of the vitrals for candela churches um Christia Hoffmann hoffman was her name and poof, i've like forgotten but like candela's churches without those vitrals are you know yeah they're impressive structural shell things mm-hmm. but again it's that but, kind of
0: but they have to have a covering right and this,
1: the, right and these glass stained glass things are just you know kind of otherworldly it, it pushes it into becoming this evanescent field of concrete that begins to dematerialize through the light and all of the things that we want we would talk about gothic architecture, you know, happening within this. And again, it's this kind of collaboration, this um, modernity that becomes kind of like transformed. Um, it becomes kind of kind of different because of this kind of crashing against the, the norm and the introduction of other means of um, kind of expression or production and so forth that begins to kind of alter it you know.
0: And it's interesting that you mentioned precisely about um, these courses that you teach on Latin American architecture at, at um, grad uh, school level. And yes, I mean we we kind of not, like been there and and know how it. It's weird because it it becomes secondary but also you hear more and more from students that their time it's primarily absorbed by studio but their interest uh, and they they just give as much time as they can to this um, seminars, but they are very interested in the topics that they are learning and, and what they can read. And they give as much time to the le- to the lectures and they give as much time to the readings. But of course, they are absorbed by studio because that's what, you know, it's it's the culture of, of many schools and, mm-hmm. and we have to live with it. But uh, it's interesting what you mentioned about... Um, these seminars and and what your students have been experienced and and I wanted to ask you and that's why when I when I mentioned the list of the courses that you that you've been teaching and how they are cataloged as non-Western and um, have you been noticing a, a difference or a growing interest in these non-Western courses? What has been your experience with these courses? What is your experience with this? Uh, students who takes them is it mostly american students Is it mostly uh, like yes tell us a little bit about those courses and and your experience with them
1: okay well i've been teaching non-western courses for a very (laughs) very
0: long time Uh, yes um, exactly and i like the the air quoting of non-western because like uh mexico is part of the west but whatever
1: (laughs) (laughs) right right um (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, yeah. Well, hey, okay. That's a couple. That's another discussion we could have about Latin America. Exactly. <laughs> um, but um, what was I going to say? No, I've been so I've been doing this for a long time, and um, and one of the things that's clear is obviously that um, that initially the idea of non-Western was a requirement for accreditation, right? And so accredited accreditation programs demanded it from schools that there was a non-West non-Western requirements um, as part of the you know as a kind of you know, like architects need to be cultured, and they need to be cultured, and more than their, you know, backyard. And so, when I started teaching, I think I fell into that, into that um, need. You know, like we need people to do to to deal with this. So, you know, modernism in the non-Western world was one of the first classes that I taught at Roger Williams. Um, the classes that I teach at Columbia um, are labeled under they're categorized as non, non-Western in terms of their curriculum. Although I think that they're changing that, but I'm not really sure as an, as a, as a kind of an adjunct, I don't, I'm not really in the discussions of this kind of not nomenclature and stuff like this. Um, so, so the classes that I've been teaching have been in the non-Western and, and in a sense, um, it's funny because the classes that I teach are mostly on modernism and a lot of the students, through the years that I've been teaching at Columbia, a lot of the students have petitioned to have their courses, you know, the class that I teach, count as a modern class rather than a non-Western class because they may have had the modern, the the non-Western requirement kind of addressed by a different class, but then now they needed the modern one. But of course, that's always denied because the class is always seen as non-Western. Um, Now, why people take it, I suspect, you know, there is the requirement, the requirements for graduation that people take certain classes, um, and whether it's mine or somebody else's, um, I think probably falls in in that. I have found that the people that take my classes are very intrigued by the themes and the topics, um, and that they're kind of, Especially, you can see it after the first presentation, the kind of like, you know, cornucopia of what are we going to be dealing with and showing all the images and kind of discussing these things that they're presented with material that they didn't expect um, or that they expected, but they didn't quite understand it at the very beginning. And so they become intrigued by it, you know, uh, and then kind of going in depth on this material allows them to kind of better understand, you know, what is, what's possible in a kind of operative way, you know, how one can practice in in certain instances, but then also of, you know, what are, you know, just what is the kind of general broader culture of the production of architecture or the production of space or the production of culture or the production of, you know, like art and and so forth. So, um, yeah, so it's like, and I I don't know, at, at Columbia it's like, I have, you know, a lot, you know, all types of students, you know, I, I, there's a lot of um, Asian students. And by that, I mean like Chinese or Korean students that are really into the material. Um, a lot of them make these very interesting parallels with their own culture and their own just kind of schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, like last semester in the, um, the, the housing course, um, one student made these connections between the, I don't know what they're I don't know how to say them are these housing blocks made out of concrete by the Soviet Union uh, that they were basically kind of constructed in Chile and in and in Cuba for example and you know she basically had grown up in one of these in China and she was interested in trying to find the parallels and what was different between say building one of these there were, the name is based on Khrush, Khrush, Khrushchev. Um, okay. um, I, that's why I can't say it um, and what, what would be the difference between say building a building like this in China as it would be to building it in Cuba in a, say a tropical climate versus what it would be like to building it in Chile which is might be say in terms of the in terms of the um, the latitude maybe parallel to the place where she might have been you know in terms of the kind of opposite mm-hmm. um, and so it became a kind of an interesting kind of comparison between cultures and and I kind of I very much appreciated that so we have that and then you have of course the like um, Latin American students that are just kind of like hungry for finding out anything about their culture, their architectural culture in particular that they haven't had an opportunity to 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 learn, And it's funny because a lot of times my Mexican students at Columbia will say, you know, I learned more about Mexican architecture in your class here at Columbia than I did in like five years of architecture school in Mexico.
0: Which is, yes, which is (laughs) is precisely what I was going to what I was going to say and ask. It's like it's interesting that um, that you have Mexican students and that they say that because it happens. I mean, I do remember having five courses during my undergrad of history of architecture, and I don't remember any of them being specifically about Mexican architecture, like they touched on topics of Mexican architecture. And we did learn about things of Mexican architecture. I do remember that my uh, course on introduction to architecture, which was basically the, the first semester, uh, that my professor, uh, he was like of, his dissertation was on Luis Barragan. So he was a passionate of Luis Barragan's architecture. And basically his whole course was teaching us what architecture was through the life and work of Luis Barragan. So I learned a lot of Barragan through that. But that was it. So uh, more than that, I, I learned through you know bits and pieces here, right? And, right. And, and yes, and and most of my of my education of of Mexican architecture was through either self thought uh, and reading, and that's why I, that's why I was telling you that your book was it has become like the bible of of Latin American architecture, because that's, like, you, you don't, it's it's funny that coming from Latin America and, and coming specifically from Mexico, you don't have, like, a course on that, and mm-hmm. then you have to come outside, like, my master's was in Spain, and, and I had a course, and, and a part of it was on Latin American architecture, and then I came here for my master's, for my uh, PhD, and, I mean, I didn't took a course in Mexican or Latin American architecture here, but and all my research was in that so I had to learn it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting. It's interesting to to learn all these things and to learn how how we in in a way these histories are, are becoming more and more part of the of the curriculum of schools and these courses are becoming more integrated into the yes, into the roster of, of mm-hmm. classes in, in many schools. And and the interest that um, that are arising, rising. I've I've learning more and more that like I'm I'm learning that more and more students are interested in these courses, mm-hmm. and I, I find it um, as a Latin American historian, like you know, compelling and interesting because it's like it means that in the future I will have a job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the economy, it like,
0: right? Yeah, it's it's,
1: like, yeah, yeah. Isn't that what Mark said? It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, but you know, um, w- one of the things that I like, I always kind of advocate in the classes, especially the ones that I've been doing at Columbia, is that um, not only is it about say learning and kind of engaging this material, but then also try to find a way of like to produce, um, to produce something that can actually help, help that cause and kind of disseminate that knowledge. So, for example, when I, when I taught the seminar on functionalism in in latin america latin america radical functionalism in latin america was the name of the seminar Um, we actually like the initial idea is to to produce something that you know we could self-publish the dean liked it so much um, that she said you know we should publish this in cows and so we i ran the seminar a second time you know we got a graphic designer we had this really interesting discussions with the graphic designer in terms of how do you present particular type of information you know what kind of material do you have how do you create something that can be disseminated as a tool right or as a type of pr- primer of sorts and um and then that's that's how our little book kind of radical functionalism in latin america came to be and so you know like it's published you know you can buy it this is not a plug I swear you can buy it on Amazon <laughs> but it's let it exist, you know and so in that little book it's the research from the students kind of collection of images of things that we found um, collection of manifestos that we've kind of again going through Avery getting material that is either already translated or that we translated ourselves and including it in a kind of appendix so that somebody who's interested for example in the Uruguayan Juan Scasso, you know, or in Luis Nunez of Brazil or uh, Vladimir Acosta or whatever, you know, can go and, you know, as a, as a, as a beginning source for investigation and then they can read their manifestos or their, you know, their ideas and kind of see it in context. So to me, it's really important that this research is not like wasted and that it's like yes. something that could become productive. Um, next semester I'm doing the second the second round of a class on utopias in Latin America. Um, and basically the first, the first version, um, which is last year. I mean, we made a document that is, I think about 250 pages of, you know, like maybe it's like 40 different Latin American utopias or dystopias, um, that, you know, like that have never been kind of brought together or even considered as part of a, as a system of kind of ideas. And so next semester, we're gonna do another round of, there's a few that kind of got through the cracks and some that we've found since, and then try to kind of fix this this up. And again, put it out as a resource for somebody who's interested in like, well, how do utopias in Latin America or dystopias in Latin America come to come to be? Or what do they mean? Or how do they engage with kind of utopian ideas? And you know, like these kinds of things. I mean, even the idea of utopia is, you know, questionably possibly Latin American, you know? Different.
0: Exactly. And and how it relates to the to being Latin America. To be in Latin America and like you said in, in your again, to quote back your book, that um, being Latin American is not one unity. It's like Latin America has different regions right. and has different countries and it might be different a different utopia like a Mexican utopia might be different to a, a Cuban utopia, and to a Brazilian utopia, and even inside Mexico, a Chihuahuan utopia might be different to a Mexico right. City utopia. So that exactly. would be like an interesting thing to to see in comparison with all these two hundred different cases that you found.
1: Right, right. And this is the thing that's interesting, I think, about um, just Latin American architecture. Or architecture in Latin America in general because of the different material cultural historical productive realities um, and the and also the interpretations of of what it means to be modern or what it is an aspiration to modernity you know um, and um, and you know while we think a lot about decolonization and what that what does that mean in terms of the implication of what modernism and modernity and modernization means, on the one hand, one of the things that I um, I'm very kind of passionate about and that I kind of appreciate very much about like the things that I've been that I've been that I've been finding is that you know like that there are these alternative modernities that it's not always in Latin America this kind of binary. Kind of opposition that there's always this um, way that um, in situations where people are adversely affected um, because of modernity and modernization that they radicalize the system that they find ways of dealing with with, with reversing it. That sometimes maybe it's a thing about my passion for transculturation or anthropophagia or this kind of idea of hybridity or deterritorialization. You know, like that there like, you know, that I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of saying that modernity is a failed project. Because in Latin America, there is these ways that we've been dealing with both the the positives as well as the negatives, you know, and that we've been kind of both critical about them um, a lot of times, although not always, but I think that kind of, you know, that kind of applies. And then how, and I think that um, you probably saw that that piece by by Fer Lara on um, um, that, that, you know, like on the, like, I, I wanna say that it's kind of like on how um, European modernity actually relies or couldn't have happened without the discovery discovery of latin america you know and i think you know then this is i think a really kind of interesting thing you know so that there is this kind of codependency of, of of modernities that you know like problematize modernity uh especially in architecture in kind of ways that it's very hard to like i said throw the baby out with the bathwater i'm probably not i'm probably not kind of wording this all right but this is the this is kind of how i've been kind of trying to about this problem. Le Corbusier is another really interesting case right that's why we did a seminar on on him because it's like Le Corbusier is not Le Corbusier without Latin America. I mean especially after 1929.
0: Ago, traveling to uh, Brazil and and him drawing like from the, the plane and, yeah, yeah. and then producing later the Albus Plan and like all of those ideas that came basically from that drawing and arriving to Latin America.
1: Yeah, exactly. His concept of the city completely changed, you know? And so it's like, it's kind of important to kind of like, kind of r- remind ourselves that it's a little bit more, you know, it's, it's a little bit more, I don't know, it's like more than just oppositional, that it is more of a, it's a little bit more messy, you know?
0: Yes. And and that, that concept of hybridity is one of the, like one of the things that I'm trying to work uh, a lot in my in my dissertation, precisely because not just because the the border is precisely a hybrid territory, mm-hmm. and the culture in the border is is a hybrid um, culture, but precisely because the modernity at that time was hybrid. So it's like several layers of hybridity that are happening in what I'm studying. And, right. and the way that I'm understanding what I'm studying is like several layers of hybridity. It's like a, a cultural hybridity. It's like modernity and modernism. It's a hybridity happening there. Even even what Mario Pani, that like most modern uh, and I'm air quoting the like modern of the architects or, or the most modernist architects of, of, of what we consider the canon of modernism in Mexico was doing a very hybrid thing in the border because that was what was needed or was -hmm. was demanding by the government Mm -hmm. Uh, and all the actors that were playing there, like Torres Bodet project for for culturalization of Mexico as as a Modern yet indigenous country, and uh, Lopez Mateo's idea of, of modern Mexico, but also, you know, with the project of, of, of the museums that were still trying to uh, make the idea of, of Mexico's grandeur, you know, with a centerpiece in, in a museum as the Museo Nacional de Anthropología with the sun, La Piedra del Sol as the centerpiece, like all of these ideas happening in, at the same time. So there are, again, s- several layers of hybridity. Mm-hmm. And and again, with hybridity comes uh, a margin and comes the, the border. And I would like to kind of like uh, approaching the 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 end of the of the of the podcast of the time to connect uh, everything that you were mentioning and everything that you were saying about the courses and about the teaching and about and about the, the modernism and and the ideas of modern architecture in Latin America to and, or teaching the Uh, modern architecture of Latin America in the United States to the ideas of of the margins. Uh, Do you think that uh, these concepts and these ideas are still in the margins of the field? Do you you believe that we as historians of the modern uh, architecture of Mexico and Latin America, are still very much in the in the in the margins of the field, of the history of 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 architecture of modern architecture in general.
1: Um, yeah, I think that we are. Um, I mean, like the fact that the class is a non non Western class, um, and that these aren't say I mean they're required required, but by you know like kind of by proxy, you know you have to take this class because you need it to graduate. Um, more and more, though, you know, with the with um, the um, the the group from MIT that is doing the the, the uh, world World Architecture Project is that what it's called, um, uh, you know, that there there's this more of an interest in trying to bring in, you know, like um, the other or the, the global South or whatever it is that you want to call it. Into the curriculum, and I think that that's something positive, but but you don't but you don't have a kind of. Um, I mean, I think you need specialized courses like with anything to kind of go in depth, right? And so that, you know, the, the best that we can, like it seems to me that the best that we can do at some point is find ways of. On the one hand, disrupting the canon and introducing these disruptions, um, these kinds of like what um, Deleuze loose call these minor histories as a way of kind of criticizing the thing, um, and and then kind of providing enough kind of you know interest and and um, and ideas of possibilities that that this other these other histories are are as important as you know like what what we have been teaching. Um, I know that in the email that you sent me there was some, something that I, I didn't understand it if it was a question or not something about the canon um, yes. <laughs>
0: and that's exactly so, the segue to that. Uh, and, yes. and, uh, speaking about the canon and talking about the canon uh, in the way that the, the email um, put it is in, in the way that we teach in the seminars, um, how do you include the canon? Do you do you talk about how how does this um you know plug into the canon, or do you n- not even talk about the canon? Don't even touch it. Uh-huh. Well, um, I, I know that the in the in the course of Le Corbusier, like you know, there is the canon. That that's like that's a figure of the canon. But in the other courses.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always the, um, the kind of reactions and relationships with uh, European, North American, like, producers, right? Um, because, I mean, whether you want to or not, they were a source of inspiration, reference, um, you know, like, aspiration. Um, and we can't kind of deny it, you know? Um, and so, uh, to a certain extent, it would be historically kind of... Um, uh incorrect not to acknowledge it to try to kind of and so for me i i i, I see global architecture as this dialogue between you know, different people and that there's kind of different effects. Some people like it. Some people don't like, you know, what is happening. like, think, for example, Oscar Niemeyer. People thought some people thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. And other people thought that he was, you know, like destroying modern architecture. Nevertheless, it caused kind of debate and he became, you know, and again, it's those debates that become part of a interesting kind of discussion. So um, to me, it's really important to reference relationships between, say, The work that is happening in latin america and the work that is happening elsewhere because it is either again an alternative modernity a modernity that relates to or reacts to or is produced through different ways that itself becomes a different thing it becomes a criticism of a particular type of you know ideal situation but on the other hand it kind of creates new directions it creates new kind of positions that you know ultimately the you know the the the, 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 I don't want to call it the center, like North European American um, uh, center. Uh, Okay. I don't want to call it that. But, you know, like that they, that it also starts to equally affect the way that things are, are kind of uh, produced. So, I mean, I think I want to, I I want to make sure that students understand that this is, this is not a binary this and that but it's always that it's a little bit more more messy in all all directions um you know like we we keep having discussions about whether we should still teach the canon Um, and i always think that the people who said that we say that we shouldn't are the people who know it and understand it and see see how the other things are equally important or perhaps maybe more disruptive and I can't imagine being in a position to not know that, you know, like to not have somebody living in the, the, the moment and the culture that we are, which again, we, we can't we can't deny it. Right. We live in this kind of European, North American um, inspired or um, kind of manufactured culture, which is bombarded to us through all kind of ideological means, TV, radio, music, videos, whatever that we can't not know where that's coming from in order to see how other cultures are more powerful. You know what I mean? Yes. So I like, I don't know, I have this kind of like love and hate relationship with the, the canon. I, I believe that it needs to be taught and it needs to be referenced because otherwise the other thing doesn't seem as important it doesn't seem as critical. It doesn't seem as subversive, um, you know, because then it just seems like a production that is like almost like, oh, well, yes, they, these people are doing that, but like, okay, why? Or, you know, I don't know.
0: Yes, it's, it's been, I guess it's it's been a conversation that has always interested me lately, of course. I mean, always, but mostly lately, because I had the opportunity to, to, teach um, survey courses uh, hmm. of modern history what you need to do
1: history. as a PhD student because that's what people wanted you to teach when you get a job exactly.
0: okay. so it's like how do you how do you address the fact that you want to teach what you know that it's more important or that you consider to be more important having you know being um, studying everything that you That you've done, like having been exposed to decolonial histories, having been exposed to uh, gender studies, having been exposed to uh, BIPOC histories, like having been exposed to all of this information, standing in front of a group, well, pre-COVID, standing in front of a group and teaching Le Corbusier and Breuer and... You know, like the traditional and laws and just them. It it feels a little bit um, repetitive of the mistakes and errors that for generations have been happening. And I've been thinking on, on ways of how to not fall into the same narratives and, and how to... Uh, Yes, and how to revert that narrative and, and how to how to not do it. And of course I, I find myself in, in, in what you've been saying. It's like it's impossible not to say it, not to talk about it, but how to revert it, how to how to include these other voices. And and my solution has been like, okay, maybe in the readings that I that I um, you know put the students to read, that I send the students. I will I will already include uh, more diverse stories but I will probably give them the canon and and I air quote them and in my lectures I will give them the other side the B side you know mm-hmm. my lectures will be the B side of the of the story so mm-hmm. for example and I always use this this example because it the, is the most fresh one that I have and it's the it's the um, it's the most like, I think it's it's the most powerful one that I have. It's like when I when I teach uh, the class on the Bauhaus, they read all about all the guys in the Bauhaus. And when they come and sit down in class, what I talk about is all the women in the Bauhaus, for example. Mm-hmm. So they don't see any images about all what the guys did. They just see all what, what the women did. And mm-hmm. all the all the studios that they opened, and all the workshops that they did, and all the work that they produced. So that's how I try to do it. Mm-hmm. So they read about the like the canon, and I bring to them the other side of the story, mm-hmm. and that's how I kind of like try to balance in a way the story. And of course, at the beginning it was like, so why do they? why do you make us read this if you're going to be talking about, about this? Yeah. But then like, after a couple of classes, it's like, oh. Got it, and then too. I, after a couple of weeks, I explained them. It's because this is what you are normally going to find in books, and this is what you're going to be learning, and this is what you don't find commonly. Like, this takes me a lot of time for me to build and try to find, like, in 10... Fifteen books to put together, but if I tell you go and read this in a book, you won't find it. Mm-hmm. And they start to like, you know, try. They start to find uh, taste. Like how do how how we say it in Mexico? They encuentran sabor. They they find uh, taste in it. They find they find sort it to like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. they start to like it. And at the end it's I, I I had this really amazing experience because um, after teaching for example the class on on uh, Eileen gray's house and the defacement of the house and how like how see it go and paints his murals and everything uh, one of the students at the end of the class she approaches me and it's like why do we have to learn about that awful like asshole guy like he was horrible <laughs> It was like, yes, but we have to separate. Like, he did amazing things. He did a great job. But, you know, but like students start to see these things of like, oh, you know, like they start to see the the two sides of the characters that mm-hmm. we learn. And this is I find that really great and really interesting because it's like, yes, now you're starting to see the figure as a complete person. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was this uh, you know we don't need uh idolize just a figure of le corbusier but we are also seeing what he did mm-hmm. and and the the reality of that he also did this and mm-hmm. that's good i
1: think and, it's i was gonna say i think it's important to kind of problematize that their humanity you know and that to not you know and this is one of the things that i always try to do in the history classes um to not um um, mytho- mythologize or mythify these figures okay. and to basically try to talk about them as people who are struggling to find something. You know, So for example, when I talk about the Bauhaus, I mean, we mainly focus on the manifesto and the ways that the kind of, you know, like an attempt to kind of create a utopian society out of the conditions given, you know, could Man, manifest themselves you know Gropius is incidental he wrote it or whatever but it's not like the main idea is is not that in the case of Le Corbusier you know it's like the 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 best thing about that example is that it shows that he was insecure Mm -hmm. you know that he did that as a guy who's hey well yeah of course he's an asshole but like man like what what insecurity do you have to have in order to do that um, and so what does that kind of speak to, like, some of the other work? So you don't see that there's, like, as, that it's, you know, like, that he's a human, that he has weaknesses, that perhaps maybe the work is dealing with, you know, some some of these things. And then you start to find these, these the, the humanity of these people, you know, and... Uh, exactly.
0: The, and, you, and you don't see him just as this genius, that it's, like, a godlike figure, right. but it's also a human being that has you know, flaws and insecurities and all of these other right, know, right. side, human side of it.
1: And I think that that's, I'm not, I'm not going to put Le Corbusier as a model, but I want to say that's the model that we understand. The, the, the way that people like look at their context, internalize it, see what the problems are and kind of try to find ways of solving the particular problem that they see you know, because we all have to deal with it in any particular situation. Um, And it's just, I don't know, in terms of the, like for teaching of architecture, it seems to me really kind of essential to teach students how to understand the complexities that they're dealing with um, and using people like Le Corbusier or, you know, Francisco Mujica or Niemeyer or Acosta or whoever as examples only shows that, that like people are Placed in different contexts, they have a different time th- situation. They have a different kind of set of relationships that they have. Effects that are changing the way that they have outlooks, and that they produce something and react to something that gives them a particular kind of world worldview. Um, and you know, like that's our humanity, right? We have some strengths, we have some weaknesses, mostly weaknesses. Um, and you know, like how do we how do we de- deal with it? The Latin American examples are for me really interesting because they, architecture in Latin America deals with the real, like the, you know, has to deal with the, you know, like material realities, um, structural realities of like a, a government economy, poverty, extraction of labor, you know, these kinds of things um, has to deal with like influences and cross influences and, and desires of clients and so forth and something is something is produced that is unique um and this is a kind of a a model that you know like that i want students to understand in the same way that i want them to understand the same way that Rosier modeled particular conditions
0: yes well sir we're basically extending our time so we have to kind of like cod uh to finish um The the, the last section of this uh, podcast is a question. So in this quarantine, where we mostly have um, access to our books and we're surrounded by them, I would like to ask you, what is your favorite book in your library?
1: Okay, (laughs) I told you that my 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 basement flooded and it had my
0: books down there. (laughs) Yes. So like right, which one is the one that you like mostly? Well, no,
1: fortunately, like the books were okay, but right now they're all in boxes. So I couldn't stand there and try to figure out which, which one is the book that I, but um, from the ones that I have out, um, I think that my, one of my favorite ones is this one. Vivienda y Ciudad by Vladimir Acosta, Problemas de Arquitectura Contemporánea. It's a book from 1936 that I bought like right as I was starting to look into the history of Latin American architecture. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a fortunate to, to have a signed copy um, that I guess he must have given to the sent to the architectural forum for review um, and it has you know like all of his corrections and you know pen and so forth um, what I like about this what I like about this book is that it's dealing with this European em- emigre to Argentina who's basically again reacting to the realities of the particular context which he finds himself in both in terms of the city and in terms of climate and materiality and so forth and how he tries to kind of provide an alternative to, to that you know coming from a very very strong European uh, background um, it's just a kind of a beautiful book because it's all kind of like you know probably he typeset it himself or it's you know like there's a lot of drawings Um, you know it's just a very kind of like it's a very kind of architects kind of book because it does have beautiful drawings and beautiful perspectives and things like this that's
0: amazing looks beautiful this would be my favorite favorite (laughs) book looks beautiful and the last one it's a section that I took from one of my favorite podcasts Latinos who lunch shout out to them and it is about uh, what is a favorite well it's mostly what is uh, your recommendations on a book series podcast something that it's thought provoking to you that you would like to recommend
1: okay um i was thinking uh in terms of books so, uh, i just got recently got this one um which um, is a it's done by one of my phd colleagues from from harvard it's called the world as an architectural project um okay. and it basically deals with uh utopia like modern utopias um, modern utopias. Um, and it's just uh, like, to me, it was a really nice kind of confirmation of that, A, the utopian project that I was doing at Columbia. It's valid. <laughs> Not okay. that I need a confirmation okay. for that, but it's just kind of, it's always reassuring to see some somebody doing something like similar to that. And it's really yeah. nice because it actually deals with utopias of all sorts and has a couple of Latin, Latin American ones. Um, in terms of movies, I like um, uh, Lisandro Alonso's uh, movie, Fantasma, which is a kind of an older movie um, but it's a fantastic movie because it actually shows this great um, uh, argentine modern building um, by roberto alvarez the teatro san martin in this very interesting light so it's really a film about a building um, but it, you know in a kind of like the building modernity as this unknown this other this jungle I like Ruiz Palacios Gueros, just because it just has great great yeah. views of Mexico and the UNAM and the kind of like that, that kind of sense of, of the, the different modernist buildings of, 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 of the city. Um, and then, um, wait, podcasts? Obviously, (laughs) yours goes without saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was one which uh, um, I cannot remember the name of it because it just kind of came to my mind. It's um, one on on Utopias um, that was just like kind of fantastic, just because the woman, uh, Avery, I can't remember what her name is. Uh, This. it has like the, the things called like this can't happen now or something like this I can't remember now
0: you can send it to me and I'll just put it in the in the list
1: okay it's a it's a fantastic just as a way of kind of dealing with the kind of realities of um, of um, just thinking about um, I'm, I'm trying to look it up right now in my uh, oh it's called nice nice try <laughs> Avery Truffleman explores the stories of people who tried to design a better world. It's just a she's a really fantastic host and a really fantastic Mm -hmm. kind of person describing things. Um, And it's just really uh, just uh, fantastic kind of like hearing somebody who's not an architect or urbanist and so forth. Talk Mm -hmm. about like how utopias actually are manufactured and see
0: clearly look into it. Yes. Cool. Well, it was Excellent. great having you here. Thank you very much for for being here, for um, taking your time to be here. Is there anything that you would like to say?
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation.
0: Yes, um, thank you very much. It was really fun and hope to see you soon. I hope so too. Take yes. care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please follow us on From the Margins podcast on Instagram and on From the Margins Perspectives on Architecture on Facebook, where you can find links to the webpage and more information on the links about the topics we discussed during the episode and the channels to communicate with me. I would love to hear from you and your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us. The more subscribers and better reviews means more representation. Thanks again.